happy Saturday. It is December 4th, 2021. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And you are listening to Morning Meeting. Thank you so much for joining us. We are reporting to you live from Greenwich Village, which is the epicenter of all things holiday. Michael, what is happening in your world? You know what? You freaked me out right before Thanksgiving. I I can't get this out of my head where you're like, December is three weeks long. And I'd never heard it. Like, you always know December is this kind of rush crush of things. And I know we, in the 18 months when we got sort of last Christmas was not, but it feels like all of a sudden you come back out of Thanksgiving and you do, there's like 12 working days this month. And I'm like, my throat closed up. I'm like, oh my God, I got so much to do. Uh, 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 uh. So I'm trying to calm down. I worked on enjoying my Thanksgiving as I'm sure you did. So I'm just trying to be open and calm and I'm going to get ready for SantaCon, which I'm wondering if it's going to happen this year. I see a bunch of drunk Santa Clauses walking around the neighborhood, but we'll see. Wait, when you say getting ready for SantaCon, do you mean that you personally are getting out the Santa suit or you're just stealing yourself for the chaos to come? Wouldn't you love to know the answer to that? Oh my God. (laughs) Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, if you find yourselves on a pub crawl in Murray Hill, keep your eyes peeled for Michael Haney. You can't miss him. I'll be dressed as a Grinch, not a Santa though. It's just wild this year. It's like, despite this Omicron or whatever it's called, like no one seems to care in New York. It's like everybody just wants to go out and have fun and like be very merry, which frankly I'm here for. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of excitement in our world this week, Michael. We've got one of our favorite writers from London is in town, the one and only Vassie Chamberlain. And she is currently, as we record this, in the courtroom down in lower Manhattan where Ghislaine Maxwell's trial is unfolding. Yeah. And it intersects with another trial that's riveting our attention, which is the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos trial. And the big news out of California this week, which started with Thanksgiving and is rolled into this week, is Holmes against standard trial wisdom took the stand in her own defense. But as Rich Cohen points out in this week's issue, we've seen a kind of spate of this now of people in highly publicized cases. It was Kyle Rittenhouse and then Travis McMichael in the Ahmed Aubrey killing down in Georgia. Defendants taking the stand in their own defense. And what's, I think, amazing about this is there's rumors that Maxwell as well is poor, may take the stand in her own defense as well. It's made for some very dramatic courtroom moments in the last few weeks, but especially with Holmes, who not only sort of accused her former boss of abusing her, but it's pretty fascinating, right? What did you make of her testimony? Well, I think that, as Rich says, it's going to be fascinating to see if she can really talk her way out of this. And the strategy seems to have been by her defense team is let's humanize her, right? She's been sitting there in a mask for how many weeks now? And she literally took off one mask. Who knows what masks she still has on, but she seemed persuasive to some people. And I think she wants you to believe that her intentions were pure and that if anyone was misled, it was her. So I think she's got a long way to go. I mean, this week she, under cross-examination, which this is the risk, she then admitted making mistakes. And so I think it's going to be seen how well she can insulate herself from admitting a fatal mistake in her judgment. This is surprising to me because for so much of Elizabeth Holmes' time in the spotlight, she's portrayed herself as this untouchable woman, right? This like power executive who cannot be tampered with. And then she's casting a totally different narrative here with her own testimony, where she portrays herself as a woman who was led astray by her lover. And that's a much more relatable stance, right? A lot of us can look back at a time when our own lives, when we believe something we shouldn't believe just because a handsome, charming, 
lover told it to us. And it's not an especially convincing argument to me. Like I was led astray by a guy. I mean, this is a woman who had many of the most powerful men in Silicon Valley and Washington and New York and far beyond in the palm of her hand, right? All of these high profile investors that she managed to land. Her big message is, how can it be a fraud if I believed it myself, right? And I also keep in my head the point Rich made in an earlier piece about the story, which is part of what her defense is, I think, angling here is, yeah, a jury hates someone who commits fraud, but you know who they hate more is rich people, hyper-rich people complaining they lost money, most likely because they were beneficiaries of early information, not inside information, but early information. And so really the fraud was mostly people were wealthy families who had, so if you're sitting on that jury, you're thinking like, well, this is in the case of the, the rich get richer. They got an inside lead on this. And so what if they lost some money? That's, I think, part of the gamble they're going to set up here. Yeah, absolutely. It's rich people never like to lose money, right? This was, again, it was a privately held company. Obviously, there were risks inherent with getting involved in such a thing. But anyway, it's such a crazy story on every level. And I personally just love watching her style evolution on the stand. Like she's got this like fair faucet hair and she's ditched the turtlenecks and she's trying to come across as more humane and like feminine. Speaking of style and fashion, can we talk for a minute about Virgil Abloh's passing? Yeah, this was a crazy and such a tragic thing out of nowhere. Well, yes, Michael, what's on your mind about this? I think like everyone, I was speechless. I was just sort of flooded with memories of watching Virgil emerge on the scene and then conquer the scene. And I, I was telling someone over the weekend, and I still remember the summer of 2011 being in Paris for the men's shows. And that was the summer that Virgil, who had met Kanye West when they were both, I think, about 20 years old, 22, and Virgil and a very young Kanye West that summer and a few other guys, they showed up at the shows and they kind of just stormed the barricades of them really. like, And they had these awesome wardrobes that they were putting together. And remember, like, you can look them up online. They're carrying Vuitton hard cases and walking around and all Montclair puffy vests and plaid pants. And it was just like this sort of guys literally from the future, which is what Virgil became. He was a futurist in many ways. And I remember seeing him there and then about, I think it was 2012, then being in Paris again with my colleague Jim Moore and Madeline Weeks and going to a small, it was just a presentation in a little place in the Marais where Virgil was sitting in the back with like a folding table and some about 10 or 12 items on hangers. And that was the beginning of his line Pyrex, which became Off-White and made from dead stock. And then five, six years later, he had conquered it all and had taken over Vuitton. So it was, I mean, an incredible narrative of a guy who started from nothing, child of Ghanaian immigrants, born in Rockford, Illinois. You can only look at it in awe and think of now what's lost. Yeah, I mean, he pioneered a completely new way of looking at fashion as an extension of what was happening in the streets and in the real world. He took this notion of streetwear whatever that means today, and brought it to so many different people all over the world. I remember shopping at Barney's once, probably in like 2015, and seeing all of these uptown ladies who lunch, you know, the types that all vaguely resemble Meryl Streep and the Devil Wears Prada, salivating over his jackets, his bags, his shoes, and they couldn't get enough. They were competing over this stuff. And it just struck me that, wow, this guy's really permeated culture in a way that few designers can dare to match. Yeah, I always think too about, he gave this interview 
I believe it was to GQ. And early on when people, the industry was, oh, he's a street word guy. He's a street. And he was very adamant. I think a, a lesson here about declaring who you are and not letting anyone define you. And he said, he kept saying like, I was adamant. He said, I tell him, this is not streetwear. I'm not contemporary. I am a designer. Because he said that was, he wanted his name. I am a designer Virgil Abloh. And because he saw and he knew that that carries a whole different esteem and emotion with it. He didn't compromise on that. So I think that that vision and and that perspective is exactly what led him to being there in Barney's and wanting Vuitton's men's. They did a very nice tribute to him, I thought, in Miami this week at Art Basel. It was the last collection that he designed for Louis Vuitton, and it was called Virgil Was Here. I just thought it was a very moving tribute because in so many ways, Virgil was here, Virgil is here. Like if you look around the streets of New York, London, Paris, Dubai, really anywhere, you're going to see his influence writ large in the way that people dress and express themselves. For sure. All right, we have a treat today for lovers of journalism and lovers of a good story. The one and only Bill Adair is joining us on Morning Meeting. Bill is the founder of the Pulitzer Prize winning website PolitiFact, and he's currently the Knight Professor of Practice of Journalism and Public Policy at Duke University, where he specializes in journalism as well as new media with an emphasis on structured journalism and fact-checking. Very important. Today, he's here to talk about one of the most notorious liars of the past 25 years, a gentleman named Stephen Glass, who was accused of fabricating over 40 stories for the New Republic and other media outlets in the late 90s. So welcome, Bill. Hi, Bill. Hello, hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for coming on. We're so happy to meet you and talk to you about the piece. You bet. Tell us, how did Glass and his story come back onto your radar? Well, I'm a journalist who has spent a lot of time looking into lying. I'm a political journalist, and I started the fact-checking website PolitiFact, and I created the truth meter uh, which is what PolitiFact uses to rate liars and lying. And so when I came to Duke as a professor in 2013, I was interested in journalists who had been, who had lost their jobs or gotten in trouble for plagiarism or fabrication because I got assigned to teach an ethics course. And I was curious what happened to Stephen Glass. And I looked around and about that time in 2013, Stephen was trying to get his law license in California. So I reached out to him and he was very nice, but declined at that time to talk to me, but said that he might in the future. And so I kept checking back with him and Finally, in 2016, he came to Duke and spoke to my class. And that was really the beginning when I realized that there might be a story here. That was when he told me that his wife, Julie, had early onset Alzheimer's disease. And it was at that moment that I thought there's something interesting here. I had always been interested in the idea of redemption. At what point does a journalist who has committed the ultimate sin in journalism of fabrication or a really egregious case of plagiarism, at what point do they redeem themselves? And so I started to talk to Stephen and over the years began to find out much more about his story. His wife's diagnosis was a real twist for your narrative, certainly. How did that factor into your decision to revisit his story Can you, for listeners who haven't read it yet? So, and it took me a while to understand all the aspects of this. And Stephen was 
open about it, but I had to find out a lot of these details myself by talking to Stephen and to his friends. It's not like he served up all the details of the story at the beginning. Her story with Alzheimer's actually went back to when, probably you could say when she was a teenager, her mother was prone to some really explosive outbursts and she had a very difficult relationship with her mother. And then by the time Julie was in her 20s, her mother developed developed early onset Alzheimer's. And Julie basically broke off relations with her mother and so much that she kind of went into denial and didn't talk to her mother and even lied about her relationship with her mother. She felt guilt about that and wrote a book about it called The Bad Daughter that came out in 1998, which happened to be the same year that Stephen was fired from the New Republic for fabrication. And so Stephen was aware of this backstory when he and Julie began dating in 2000. And in that book, Julie talked about the possibility that she might get early onset Alzheimer's disease. And she talked about what she might do if she tested positive for the gene, if she developed the disease. She said if she developed the disease that she would commit suicide. She even explained how she would commit suicide. So there was this incredible backstory. So they fell in love, Stephen and Julie. She was fine until about 2012 or 2013 when she began showing some unusual symptoms that Stephen became suspicious about. And that was really when he began to wonder if she had Alzheimer's disease. Among many things, this is a great tale of redemption, but it's also a pretty incredible and touching love story between Stephen and Julie. How, in your mind, does that play out in the overall redemption story for Stephen? And how important do you think her support was in his ability to create some semblance of a new life for himself? I think the love story aspect of my piece is really wonderful. And that goes back to really to 2000 when they started dating. And you have to think about Stephen Glass was a pariah in journalism. He was fired by the New Republic. He was a real villain in American journalism. In many ways, he still is today when I tell people that I'm publishing an article about Stephen Glass, they're kind of aghast because he is still the poster boy for bad journalism. And so Julie fell in love with him and he fell in love with her and they shared a love of movies and literature and they had these long conversations about everything, about politics and literature and good films and bad films. And they just really connected. And so that love was strong and kept them together and supported each other through good times and bad times. And I think made possible when Julie developed Alzheimer's disease, it made it possible for Stephen to be so supportive and so loving. And Julie made some pretty extraordinary requests of Stephen that were really hard for him that I explain in the story. And it was possible for Stephen to fulfill Julie's wishes because that love was so strong. Bill, you teach a course on this at Duke. Why is it so important to study the liars? It's interesting. It's a course called News as a Moral Battleground. And what I discovered when I started teaching it is that there's very little focus on journalists who have committed plagiarism or fabrication. And there's sort of this assumption that all we have to do is tell students 
don't do that. <laughs> and in one sense, that's true. They shouldn't do that. But to me, as a journalist, every story about a journalist who has done this is a fascinating tale. It's a fascinating tale sometimes of dysfunction in a newsroom that allowed this to happen, particularly in the case of plagiarism. And it's often a really fascinating tale of a journalist who made an epic mistake, who decided that they were going to do this for what whatever personal gain in whatever dramatic circumstance or whatever. So in the case of Stephen Glass, it was of huge scale. He fabricated more than 40 articles in the New Republic and other publications. So the scope of that is just amazing. And so I wanted to understand his thinking, why he did it, all of that. But then as I've taught this class, I've realized that there's this other aspect of redemption. At what point does someone who made these epic mistakes redeem themselves and earn the right to be trusted again? Do they ever earn the right to be journalists again? Where can they be trusted? And I think we sometimes we live in this cancel culture world, in this black and white world where we're like, that person is bad. We can't ever trust them again. So that aspect of plagiarism and fabrication came up and really fascinated me. I think this article, and if it were ever to be made into a film, I think I'm not sure that would happen. But I think it's definitely a very different portrayal of Stephen that makes you see him in a very different dimension and shows his deep love for Julie and shows how he's grown as a person and how he's healed and just shows the tremendous things he did for someone he loves. So I found it very moving working on this article, and I hope people who read it have the same experience. Bill, I'd love to hear about how your students have reacted to his story. They have tended in the past to be to be hardliners, I guess you would say, on journalists who have committed plagiarism or fabrication. I've done exercises several years where I ask, would you hire these journalists? And a majority of the class would say no. But when I've gone over the details of Stephen's story with them, they are really moved. The last scene of the article, without giving it away, is, I think, very powerful. It occurs in my class, and it was very powerful for me. It was very powerful for the students. There were a lot of students with tears in their eyes. And I think that they look upon what he's done in a whole different way because of his deep love for Julie. Yeah, it does give you a sense of optimism. You touched on a minute ago, we're so used to the cancel culture to where no one gets a chance for forgiveness. They just get tried and convicted by the court of public opinion. And I think especially the perception is that the people in their 30s and 20s who don't have that life experience and that perspective may not see that life is a little more gray at times and forgiveness is required, right? Yeah, exactly. Bill, thank you so much, not only for a great story, but for all of your insights here. We look very forward to doing another story with you soon, and we wish you a wonderful holiday. Great. Well, thank you much. I really have enjoyed it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Bill. Bye-bye. On the theme of actions have consequences, Ashley? We 
now have the theme for our show, Michael. Yeah, well, actions have consequences and be careful what you say and where is the truth and where is the non-truth. Can we talk about Stuart Heritage's piece this week? Ooh, this new book about Charles, William and Harry is a firecracker. Yeah, it's called Brothers and Wives Inside the Private Lives of William, Kate, Harry and Meghan. And just to refresh your memory, all of you out there, back in the fall, you may have seen Meghan Markle's performance, I mean, interview with Oprah Winfrey, where she said a number of things, some of which these claims have been disproven. One, that the Archbishop of Canterbury did not marry the couple in private before their wedding. And secondly, their son Archie was not denied a royal title on grounds of race. But there was one other claim that had this mysterious status. And in it, in one point in the interview, Markle revealed to Winfrey that a senior royal had, quote, concerns and conversations about how dark Archie's skin might be when he's born. And then Prince Harry added, that conversation I'm never going to share. And so there was always this speculation, well, who was the royal racist? And Ashley, what do we know now? It was Charles, which I find to be the least surprising thing ever for some reason. Like he seems to have inherited his father's pension for making gaffes. Yeah, as the author claims it, it was Prince Charles who said that. And reportedly over breakfast, he says one morning, I wonder what the children will look like. And after being reassured by his wife, Camilla, Stuart Harris in the book says that any child of Harry and Meg would be gorgeous. Charles doubles down on his query and says, quote, according to the book, I mean, what do you suppose their children's complexion might be? So the weird thing about this to me was that it happened over breakfast. Like I would have imagined maybe after a few sherries in the afternoon or a couple martinis at dinner, but no, it was breakfast. And I think it's so telling that Camilla knows where this is going and tries to walk him away from it. It gave us actually some very unique insight into their relationship. This is going to make for an very intriguing 17th season of The Crown, I'll tell you that. Wow. It's a book that's caused quite a stir, obviously, in the UK. And I'm also fascinated by, as you point out, the title of the book and its brothers together. And I think when I reflect on this book as well, I just think about how Diana, all she wanted, according to what I've read, is to keep these boys together. Her vision was always, William will become king and Harry will basically be his right hand at the throne, right? And now the one thing she didn't want, which is to have them cleft in two, is what's happened, right? Yeah, it's so bizarre. I mean, it just makes me think, did you see King Richard? Have you seen that yet? I have seen King Richard. Have you? I did. I snuck out yesterday during the workday and saw it. Sorry, guys. All in the name of morning meeting. But I wanted to talk about it because I think it's so interesting when you look at the Venus and Serena Williams in contrast to William and Harry. I was reading an interview with Zach Balin, who wrote the script. And this is a movie, I would say that the primary focus is not athleticism. The primary focus of this movie is raising great children and how a parent does it. So for those who haven't seen it, this is a new film starring Will Smith. He plays Richie Williams, the father of Venus and Serena Williams, as well as the other Williams siblings. And it follows the family over the course of the girl's childhood, all the way up until Venus's first pro tournament. And it's so fascinating. There are parts of this narrative that are so well known because Richie Williams has been such a media figure for almost 30 years now. But there were other parts to me that were less familiar. And I just thought the acting in this was incredible. I actually loved it. I would really recommend it. And the one strange thing about it, though, is that everyone's moaning that it's not a safe time to go to a movie theater. Well, come to New York City because there were two people in the theater when I went and I was one of them. So I don't know what this means for commercial real estate here in New York, but no one's going to the movies, it turns out. It's just Michael and I. So if you want to hang out with us, you know where to find us. Michael, we got to talk holiday travel. 
For those who are tempted to try something a little bit different, we have a hysterical account of a Viking River cruise by Dan Rubenstein in the issue this week. So this cracked me up. He sent me this note and he was like, Ashley, like, I know you saw the Viking River cruise advertisements on Downton Abbey. And I was like, of course. And I thought it was a fabulous idea. Dan actually booked the trip and he's done it twice now. And the funny thing about it is he's like a fairly erudite and well-traveled fashion and design editor. And a Viking River cruise is perhaps not the most, how can I say this delicately, Michael? It's no silver seas. Okay. I'll put it that way. But he had an incredible time and he writes about it in the issue this week. And it, it's just kind of a David Sedaris romp through Christmas schmaltz and street food. That's one sort of trip you can take. The other trip we have, which is a very funny piece in the issue this week, is Flora Gill, the daughter of the late great journalist A.A. A. Gill. And she recounts for us the time when she was 17. And her father asked her, he's working on a story, if she would accompany him, the sex in the city bus tour of New York City. File it under daddy issues, question mark, but there it is. It's another story that's going to make you laugh. It's a good little gift for you, a little Advent gift. That's wild. Are you going to watch the new Sex in the City thing? Did you watch the original Sex in the City? Now's the time to tell. I never watched it. All I remember is like when it first came out, my mother calling me. My mother was watching in Chicago speaking. And she called me and said, can I ask you a question? I said, I'm worried. Is that what it's like for you out there? Is that what the dating life is like for you? It's like, mom, don't worry. You're like, mom, I'm Mr. Big. Shove it. (laughs) I'm not even going to talk about the number of people I know who moved to New York just because they wanted to be like Carrie Bradshaw. I may have partly been one of them, to be clear, but... Partly. little influential. I can't help it. Okay. Like what's not to love about drinking cocktails and writing? I mean, come on. This latest iteration, it's like the definition of beating a dead horse. I have a feeling you're going to be sneaking out again for a matinee and sitting in a theater when it opens. So I know where to find you on opening day. Sorry. I think Tuesdays are going to be my movie day, by the way. Okay. Just, just keep that between you and me. Just saying. All right, Michael. Well, before we head off into this wintry wonderland of a weekend, I know you're going to see the Nutcracker, maybe the Rockets. Do you have anything at all to recommend? I have three things I want to recommend. Sheesh! Three things. I'll be very efficient. Okay. I know what you were doing over the holiday. Number one, like you, I went back to the theater and I saw a film that I had only recommended based on the trailer. And I'm happy to report this film, Licorice Pizza, the new Paul Thomas Anderson, is every bit as good as I hoped it would be. It is with Philip Seymour Hoffman's son starring in it now, but it's gorgeous, funny, romantic, looking at a very unconventional romance set in 1973 Southern California. And it's just filled with these tiny, but also large, beautiful, the joys of adolescence mixed with that ineffable yearning that you had with it back as a teenager. Bradley Cooper as John Peters, the boyfriend of Barbara Streisand. I wouldn't say steals it, but like he comes in and just his moment in the film is fantastic. It's wonderful. I think it's going to be a sure contender for a lot of awards, but I find it fascinating that House of Gucci sucked up all the oxygen during the time, like for three months running up, and this movie just slipped out of nowhere, came right in the theaters and showed like with no hype how great it was. And meanwhile, we all know what happened to the House of Gucci, which, by the way, we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about because Tom Ford did it better than we did. Exactly. Just go and read Tom Ford's story in airmail. Tom suffered through a screening, so we wouldn't have to. And Tom was there. He lived through this. And he has such great insight into what was real, what wasn't real. I mean, it- the second thing I want to recommend, again, we had David Camp talking about Beatles documentary, Get Back on Disney+. Plus. Watched it, if you haven't, my God. And I was thrilled. I was at dinner 
last night. Among the guests there was Peter Brown, who you don't know him. He's immortalized in the Ballad of John and Yoko, where John sings Peter Brown called to say, you can make it okay. You can get married in Gibraltar in your spring. And Peter Brown, along with Brian Epstein, helped manage the Beatles and ran Apple. Anyway, I got to geek out with Beatles about with him. So please, you've got to see this. And we can talk about it in a whole episode later. But my final recommendation is courtesy of John Lahr. And if you're in London, until December 18th, go to the Harold Pinter Theater, and there you can see Rafe Fines starring in a one-man show doing four quartets by T.S. Eliot. As Lar says, it's his Christmas gift to a coronavirus-winded London, and you leave full of gratitude for his articulate energy. It's just a magnificent performance. If you're in London, I only hope you go to get to see it, and maybe it'll tour, maybe they'll film it, but uh, boy, it sounds like a beautiful little gift right now. That And what's curious is... Fines had once read the poem for a sort of audio version. And during lockdown, he thought, I'm going to try and memorize the four quartets by Elliot. So he spent lockdown memorizing them, literally bringing them inside of him, and then thought, I should do this as a one-man show. So there you go. And you, dear? Well, you recommended this to people who live in London. Let's not be so narrow-minded, okay? Planes are flying again. You and I can get over there. I almost booked a ticket to London based on John's review. Sounded so incredible. I mean, but as we know, December's only three weeks long. Who really has the time? Stop freaking me out. Sorry. What do you got? 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 I have one small thing to recommend. Well, two small things. If you are tempted to stay in bed all day and just sit out the holiday season entirely, there's help for you. Airmail has recently unveiled its latest collaboration, and it's with Alex Mill. And we have come up with some pretty spectacular pajamas. That's right. Several different pieces included, pants, shorts, and a shirt. And they look really great, and they're comfortable, and they're a fabulous gift. And if there's one thing you know about us at Airmail, we really liked piped pajamas. Don't even think about bringing unpiped pajamas our way. So these look great, and they're really well-made and super comfortable. They've got the Graydon Carter stamp of approval. So check them out on our site, as well as at Alex Mill. Michael, did you get one of those Anderson and Shepard jackets that we did? I did not. Did you? Oh, no, I did not, Michael, because they're about $2,200. But they're really good looking, and that's another gift for the hard to shop for person on your shopping list this year. Michael, actually, it would be a good gift for you. Maybe if I save my pennies, I can make it happen. But it's really good looking. Graydon obsessed over the details of this. And it is just the most smashing looking work jacket you can find. It looks good on everyone. Perfect color too. Great color. Anyway, so just two little gift tips from your friends at Morning Meeting. And that's about all I have. Great. On that note, Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officers, Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Chris Garrett, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify, but most of all, thanks for joining us.